0: I want to share with you a story about freshman year of high school, all right? Now, if you remember, there's no good stories come out of freshman year of high school, I'm pretty sure. Uh, There's no fond memories of freshman year of high school, I'm pretty sure. And I used to sit in the lower quad uh, where the freaks, geeks, and squirrels would sit, uh, and the upperclassmen would throw stuff at us from the upper quad. That's kind of how it went. That's how we learned our place. And uh, I had a friend and a friend. I only have one friend. No, uh, I had a few. But one in particular we started hanging out a lot with, and I went to pick him up from his house. I couldn't drive, I was 13 years old. Went to his place and picked him up, and right as he was getting in our car, it was the first time we'd hung out outside of school, my mom puts on Christian radio. And at that time, in the early 2000s, Christian radio consisted of two people. Casting Crowns and Chris Tomlin. That was it. Now, they're great. They love Jesus. Great singers. Uh, Some great music, all right? But as a freshman in high school, uh, I I tried to be consumed by that chair. Uh, I was embarrassed. I was shocked. I was thinking, what is this kid, my only friend, going to think of me with this Christian radio on? Now, Christian radio to this day has has gotten maybe a little bit better. I mean, there's still some times some songs will come on. I'll instantly turn it and think I could uh, worship better to Queen's We Are the Champions song at times. But nonetheless, the music came on in the car, and I felt deeply ashamed. Oh, it was like in my heart that he was going to think, judge, slander me, think differently of me. Now that turned out to be not the case. It was the exact opposite. Chris turned out to be a great friend, someone we spent a lot of time together, who actually loved spending time with my family because we were believers, because we loved Jesus. But in that moment, and it sticks out as clear as day, I was ashamed of the gospel. I was ashamed of praising God's name, because I knew he was different than me. I knew he wasn't a believer. I knew he didn't know Jesus. And I was afraid of being persecuted, ridiculed, or slandered by another 13-year-old boy. Nonetheless, the Lord has taught me from that day on what it means to be a believer, what it means to be one of God's beloved, what it means to follow Him, to live a life patterned after His Son, and the joy and responsibility it brings. This morning, we are talking about a passage where Peter is changing this, this perspective in his epistle. He has taught us, and now he's going to show us. He's going to direct us. He's pointing a direction for us to walk and a way in which to live. But he's going to give us a warning before he does so. And so if you have your Bible with me, I'd love for you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We're going to spend our time this morning in those two verses, and we're going to see what the Lord has for us and the direction Peter's going to point us to. So if you have your Bible, uh, it starts in First Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, and I'll read it with you. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. Before we get started, I want to pray. So will you join me? Our Lord and our God, we've opened your word, and we ask for your spirit to be the teacher this morning. Will you guide our head and our heart into the places in which we need to examine our lives, reconstruct, or reorient our decisions? But ultimately, will, you, will this message result in the praise and glory of your name? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Peter's going to start off by telling us, we are the objects of God's love. Now, in your Bible, in your translation, and what's on the screen, it says, dear friends, but that word that, we've, that the translators have chosen doesn't necessarily carry the same weight that Peter is bringing to bear on an isolated, persecuted church in Ephesus. Beloved, or in the Greek, agapatoi, conveys a powerful reminder of the recipients of Peter's love, but more importantly, the unconditional love of God. This phrase, beloved, is scattered throughout Scripture. Peter uses it, James uses it in his epistle, John uses it. The Apostle Paul throws it out throughout his epistles and his letters. The term beloved is used for individuals and the church as a whole. It was also used as the nation of Israel. Back in Psalm chapter 60, verses 4 and 5, this is Israel crying out. It says, you have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from, be- from the bow. Rest, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. This is a term of identity. It's a term of endearment. They are the beloved of God and they are, they are reminding the Lord, we are your beloved. Think of us. Save us. This is the same word that God used of Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased Paul, in Romans chapter 11 verses 28 through 32, uses it to describe the nation of Israel, their identity as the beloved of God, and then ties in the Gentile world into that identity. Read with me in, in Romans 11:28, it says, "Regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage." Now this comes in a section where Paul is, is showing the church how they relate to the nation of Israel, how they are tying in to the root that this is a salvation that comes from the Jews, as Pastor Jeff shared with us last week. So regarding the gospel, they were enemies for your advantage. But regarding election, they are loved or beloved because of the patriarch. since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. As you once obeyed God, but now have received mercy, disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy for you so that they may also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. What is this title and identity of beloved? It's a guarantee. It's a promise, and it's irrevocable. It's a powerful word. But notice it's saying it's irrevocable because of the patriarchs. Now, in the nation, uh, the, the history of the nation of Israel, it's not one of success, but one of Failure. But in that failure, it's highlighted by compelling accounts of God's gracious and faithfulness to his people. And now the Gentile world is grafted into the same identity. It's irrevocable because God gave promises to the patriarchs to bless them, to bless the whole world through them. This term beloved is our identity, brothers and sisters. We are the beloved of God. We are objects of his love. And that status is irrevocable. But if you read through the New Testament, this word beloved has it scattered. It may be described to an individual, but when it's described to the whole church, do you know what follows right after it? A command to follow. This term beloved shows up, and then after it is a command, now I want you to do something about it. This is who you are, now go be who you are. And that's no different for Peter here. And so we're the beloved of God, objects of his love, and we need reminding of this as we grow in our faith. And I think the apostle John grabbed hold of this identity better than most. We just went through his gospel as a church uh, over the past year. And through his gospel, he never mentions himself by name. Instead, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple. Now, if I'm talking with John, I think more often than not, I would probably scratch my head when I'm talking to him. I said, buddy, are you sure you want the title beloved disciple? Because I I don't know, it sounds a little pretentious. Like, what do the other disciples think? And I I think if John were to respond, he would have said, well, most of them are dead, so I don't think they matter too much. But that title has more to say about God than it says about me. Because if you look at the apostle John, from the glimpses that we see, he has another name, him and his brother, James and John, son of Zebedee, which translated means sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. When you get that picture, I have a son of thunder. My second son, man, that guy, I found him outside the other day with his shirt off with a hammer smashing bricks. Why? Because he had a hammer and there were bricks, and that just seemed like a good thing to do. He's a son of thunder. He is loud, proud, and he's going to be bashing people around. Okay? James and John seem to have that same characteristic. This is the same James and John that if you read the Gospels, they're the ones that go up to Jesus and say, can we sit at your right hand and your left? We want want places of prominence in your kingdom. We want responsibility and authority and prestige and everything that comes with it. And Jesus says, are you sure you can drink from the cup that I drink? And they said, yes, we can do those things, not really knowing what was going to happen. This is also the same James and John. If we read Luke chapter 9, verses 52 through 55, it's a small little account. But Jesus and his disciples are traveling through Samaria They're traveling through uh, the half-breeds of the Jews, if you will. And this is what happens. Look at this account that James and John had. He, this is Jesus, sent messengers ahead of himself on the way to Jerusalem. When the disciples, excuse me, uh, entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? Jesus, can we have Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0? Let's burn these people for what they've said and done. They're not worthy of anything, and the Lord's response is perfect. He turned to them and rebuked them, and they went to another village. This is the same John in his gospel. If you go to John chapter 4, writes about Jesus and his interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well, who is caught in rich sin, yet receives Jesus and goes into town and brings her entire town out to come, see, and receive Christ. This apostle John has been changed because he's the beloved disciple, because he's beloved of God. John, in his gospel, when he says, I am the beloved disciple, he is conveying to us that look at who God is. He has saved me, changed me, and transformed me into his image. This is who I once was, but it's not who I am anymore. Brothers and sisters, we are the beloved of God, we are objects of his love. And there's going to be a transformation in our life because of it, just like John. And so we have to ask the question, what's the change that we're going to endure? This is an awesome thing to be the beloved of God. There are some amazing promises that come with it, but then there's also a transformation we ought to expect in our lives. And Peter lets us know. We are the objects of God's love and exiles because of it. Look at the second part of verse 11. I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Peter is bringing back echoes of Israel's past. Their position as strangers and exiles in this world was because of rebellion. In this case, it's not. We are strangers and exiles in the world, not because we've disobeyed, but because we've obeyed. We are strangers in this world because of God's love for us. And we have to ask why. Why does God's love for us result in us being strangers, aliens, living in a foreign land with no rights, with no expectations to be outcasts and outsiders? Why does God's love do that to us in this world? Because we can't be loved by God and loved by the world. Surrendering our lives to Christ initiates new and better values, ethics within our lives that are counter to the world's values and ethics. That makes us strange. We're strange in this world. That's what I was afraid of when Chris stepped into my car that, year, that freshman year. I was afraid of being strange, being weird. Now, I already was. I was a freshman in high school. What did I, how much stranger could I get? Nonetheless, in that moment, I was afraid of being a stranger and an outcast, but that's the very thing we're promised to be. That's because our ethic in which we live, the foundational core of our heart, is we live by the cruciform ethic. Our ethic that we hold to of cruciformity patterns our life after the cross and after Jesus' life. Read with me in Philippians 2, 5-8. Paul gives us this exact, what the cruciform life is. It says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ. Adopt the same attitude, disposition. Adopt the same expectations. Be one with him, is essentially what, Peter, uh, what Paul is saying here. And then he gives us a description. So what will that look like? Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited? This, I'm not doing this for my own gain. The way in which I live, serve, love is not for what was returned to me. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humility, humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross that last point is saying not just death a humiliating death a death for an outcast a stranger a, re- a, a rebel and so as christ lives we imitate therefore we are first and foremost servants that's a cruciform ethic of life in which we live what we're given from the father is to be returned back to him in glory and so we depend on him for provision for protection for providence, to live, work, raise a family, serve one another. That's the cruciform ethic. We depend on another for our guidance in life. For our perspective on life. For our provision in life. And that makes us a stranger in the world that operates out of a different ethic. A self-centered ethic. So these are the two appointing, uh, opposing views that are at war. And then when I say self-centered, there are plenty of people in this world. In fact, there are thousands, if not millions, that are extremely humble and selfless. What I mean by self-centered ethic is a macro description of one relying on themselves to perceive the world correctly, to provide for oneself indefinitely, and to produce for one's self-satisfaction alone. It's a self-centered ethic. It's up to me. These two worldviews, these two ethics, do not mesh. They are oil and oil and water. And so we're strangers in the world because God has called us out uh, by his love out of this self-centered ethic, this self-centeredness, out of captivity to sin which wages war against the soul. And I'm curious, is it a war that we're taking seriously? The war that he's talking about, the soul of what it's fighting over, the soul is the dimension of, uh, that relates to God. And God wants all of it. So our soul is the way in which we perceive, relate, enjoy, worship God. And our sinful desires wage war to destroy it. But really what's taking place is a civil war. There is the flesh that still lingers on and then there's the spirit that is consuming more and more of the heart. And so our soul is entrenched in a civil war, fighting over two ethics of cruciformity and self-centeredness. And what Peter is saying is don't give in to these former ways. See, this isn't the first time Peter is imploring us to move on from our former ignorance. Look back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He actually gives us what we would consider these sinful desires. He says, 1 Peter 2, 1, Rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Do you know what all means? Everything excluding nothing. It's the definition of all. Everything excluding nothing. So all malice, evil, wickedness. All deceit, lying, even white lies that we think are totally fine. Hypocrisy, that who we say we are, we are. Envy and all slander. For Peter, what he's describing to us in this new action, now that we are a, a beloved people of God, we are a, a royal priesthood, we are now a people, this is a le- of level 10 importance. And our attitude has everything to do with this struggle. Our attitude, whether it be flippant or serious, he's having us be serious. You know the first battle of the Civil War after the firing of, at Fort Sumter. So the first Battle of Bull Run in 1861. the Army of Northern Virginia lined up uh, across from the Army of the Potomac to wage war. And do you know what happened on the sidelines? People went out and had a picnic to watch this. Because in their minds, they thought, this is to be a little spat between brothers. They'll get a little bloody. There'll be a little loss of life. It won't cost much, but this will resolve the conflict and we will go on with our lives. And yet, what do we know about the Civil War? It was the most destructive thing in our nation's history. Dividing families, friends, and a nation. For four years, the bloodiest battles ever fought by Americans were fought in the Civil War over an ideology. But these people who went out had a had the wrong view of what was taking place. They weren't serious about the war that was about to begin. Brothers and sisters, do we approach the civil war of our heart with the same mindset as just this casual spectator? This will be over soon, and it won't cost much. Peter's describing the exact opposite. As strangers and exiles in this world, it will cost a lot. This is a costly civil war, but it's one worth waging. But not by ourselves. And so, by taking our walk with the Lord seriously and removing sin from our lives, there will be a response to this. We will be strangers in this world. We we'll be, be, will become otter and otter. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 4. We're, so, we're skipping ahead a little bit in Peter. So, whoever's preaching that, I'm sorry, I'm giving a little insight. But it says this Peter's given this response. This is the world's response as we pursue godliness. They were surprised that you didn't join in the same flood of wild living. And what's the result? They slander you. My sister had this when she lived in Ventura, California. It's a millennial beach town full of old beach bums as well. It's a cool little city. They have a bunch of neat things there. Great restaurants. It's awesome. And so my sister was waitressing in a high-end fish restaurant. She needed a new apartment to live in and, and some new roommates. And she had some great relationships with the people she worked with. So two other girls needed a roommate as well. And so my sister decided to move in with those two roommates. And they had a great relationship prior to them all living together. But as a result, my sister did not participate in the same events and decisions that they did. She did not go out partying. She did not spend her time gossiping and slandering others. She would not involve herself in malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or slander. And what did they decide to do? They ostracized her in their own house. Treated her as if she was anathema, that she didn't even exist. And the place in which she worked, those two girls began to speak so evil of her to everyone around her that everyone called into question who Molly was. And what did my sister do, who is a loving, caring teddy bear, who feels compassion and empathy on everyone and everything, including little guinea pigs? That's how heartfelt she is. It didn't mesh, but nonetheless, they slandered her because she would not join in to the self-centered ethic of life in which they lived. This will happen to us, brothers and sisters. The same vitriol that was poured out towards other things in this world, namely the police most recently, one day will be poured out towards the church. And it will not be rational, but it will be born out of a self-centered ethic. But what is Peter telling us to do? Abstain. Abstain from these sinful desires. Abstain from malice, from hypocrisy, envy, and slander walk away from these things. And when we do so, we're going to be out of step with any and every society. Know that. There's not a society on this planet in which we as believers will mesh and fit perfectly and the world will love us. And so we're not trying to be odd. We're odd because we're trying to be godly. Our striving for holiness will be noticed and it will be judged. So let's not give the world any grounds for accusing us of wrongdoing. And so Peter gives us this example in chapter 12, uh, verse 12. He wants us to know, live holy lives amid secular chaos and let God take care of the final results. 1 Peter 2.12 2, says, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify on the day God, the day he visits. So we have to ask this question, what is honorable conduct? Or what determines what is honorable amongst us? On the surface we might think Peter is considering what is that what the world deems as honorable but this couldn't be farther from Peter's mind he's concerned with holiness he's concerned with us reflecting us the holiness of God in this world because if honor were bound to cultural guidelines we'd be doomed to chasing an ever changing ideal instead honor is tied to the goodness of God's character and commands Honor is tied to the goodness of God's character and commands. And so Peter is calling the church to a lifestyle that begins and ends with holiness. And when I say that, what comes to mind for you? What comes to mind first when I say, be holy? I I assume your mind, because we live in an American Christian mindset, we're prone to think through the world, a Christian worldview, with the two lenses of discipline and efficiency. We want to be disciplined and we want to be efficient. Those are excellent godly things. But we look through holiness through those lenses. And so when we think of discipline and uh, efficiency, we think of I need to read, pray, tithe, serve, and I have this checklist to do. I need to meet this standard. That's what we think of as holiness first. And those are all good things, yes. But primarily the holiness that Peter's um, presenting to us is a heartfelt desire for the fullness of God to be present in our life. It's a hunger and thirst for the presence of God in your life and my life on an experiential level. That was the opposite of what I experienced in the car that day, freshman year. What did I experience? Shame. I did not experience a hunger and thirst for righteousness. But Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be satisfied. Brothers and sisters, the beloved of God have a hunger and thirst for the fullness of God in our lives. And so will the honor of a holy life be noticeable to this world? Yeah, it'll stick out like a sore thumb and it will offend. And Peter's urging us not to give our persecutors a reason to persecute us on anything other than the gospel. Peter wants the gospel to be what's offensive, first and foremost. Not our slandering, not our white lies, not our uncertainty, not our malice. What should be offensive in our life? The gospel and the gospel alone we live in a society who's turning and twisting what is a virtue do you know in our day and age it's a virtue to shame someone now it's a human virtue to shame someone to belittle and to undermine them for one's own benefit in fact we look up to we i'm not saying we i'm just saying there are people who look up to those who do it well like man that guy's really good at doing that growing up i had my grandparents live across the street my aunt and uncle lived across the street i had another cousins that lived about a mile away i was around them all the time And my grandma, being retired, was always home and around. And we'd tease the cousins. And being the oldest, I would tease. I mean, I was perfect most of the time, but there would be little hiccups here and there. And so I would tease. And my my grandma would respond to any teasing that she would hear. She would always say, No put downs. No put downs. I just thought that was an odd phrase as a kid. I thought it was really weird. And then it just got annoying because she would say it all the time. Because I would think to myself, What do you mean? We're just teasing each other. It's no big deal. Doesn't matter. And yet I think this world needs a a grandma over them, especially a lot of our leaders, just saying, no put-downs. It's that simple. Don't slander and undermine someone. Why? Because they're God's creation. That's honorable conduct. And so Peter's calling us to a holy living, a holy standard, a holy desire. And when we offend because of the gospel, they will slander us. And they will. And they will refuse to join in. When we refuse to join in, their self-centered logic. Our good works will speak on our behalf. For some, the testimony of our good works, flowing out of a thirst for godliness, will result in their glorification of God. That our good works will result in people coming, seeing, and believing in Jesus. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 14 and 16. He says, You are the light of the world, a city situated on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The offensiveness of the gospel will be a relief to some, it will be a blessing to many. Because we're not the author of these good works in this life of holiness. We don't receive the praise for them. There, may be, there might be adoration directed towards us because of our good standing and the honorable way in which we're living. And some will come to know Jesus, but ultimately, the praise goes to Him. We are God's ambassadors. Through our good works, He is revealed and He is praised. Those two girls who were slandering my, sisters all throughout her, my sister all throughout her job, her bosses, her managers and everyone she worked with, whenever they heard the slanderous things that these girls would say to my sister, none of them believed it. None of them did. In fact, they all came to her and said, do you know what your roommates are saying about you? And my sister would accept it. A broken heart with tears in her eyes, yes, but each one of her managers, bosses, and coworkers all affirmed because she lived honorably among them. And I don't know what's going to happen in the long run, but I do know that someone there recognizes that because my sister knows and loves the Lord, that when the gospel is shared with them, they will have a testimony in which to hang that as truthful, as valuable. But this isn't the only story of this happening. There's missionaries who were in the Philippines at the outbreak of World War II. Herb and Ruth Klingan with their young son. And as the Japanese came and the American forces left the Philippines, they hid out in, in the wilderness for a while, but they were eventually captured by the Japanese military. And they were put in a civilian prison camp. And for years, they suffered atrocities after atrocities. The commander of the camp, Commandant Kenoshi, was a brutal, statistic oppressor. One case of Herb in his diary as he's writing, I really suggest you read his diary almost every day he wrote. It's amazing testimony of the faithfulness of God and one's heart towards God in being an outcast and a stranger. But one time in particular, Commandant Kenoshi increased the food rations for all the prisoners, with the exception that what he gave them was unhusked rice kernels. And if you ate unhusked rice, it was razor sharp barbs that, as you would eat it, would create lacerations and ulcers within the body that you would eventually die of internal bleeding. But at the same time, if you spent the time dehusking each piece of rice, you would burn more calories than the rice would give you. This is the level of oppression that they lived under for years and years. But one thing they did was amazing. They lived honorably before this man. The Klingons and other missionaries, they, have, they, they continue to su- uh, be abused, suffered horribly for years, but they never failed to hold church services. With little to spare, they often sacrificed for others in the need, in, in others' needs in the camp and volunteered for punishments when the weaker brother couldn't sustain it. For years, they did this. Eventually, the day came of their liberation. Paratroopers after MacArthur stormed uh, General MacArthur stormed Manila. They were pushing out, but what had been taking place is prisoner camps were being slaughtered before the United States military could get there. And so paratroopers were dropped on these prison camps to liberate them behind enemy lines. Their liberation came on the same day we landed in Iwo Jima, which why we really don't know this. But Commandant Kenoshi escaped. As the paratroopers landed, he fled into the countryside. He was later captured, years later, ironically, in a rice paddy. And he was sentenced and committed to death. But upon his execution, he confessed faith in Christ. And in his testimony, he said, "...it was the missionaries, the prisoners that I oppressed, abused. Their faithfulness and honorable living before me is the reason why I believe." The execution was carried out, but brothers and sisters, we have a brother named Kenoshi in heaven that was forgiven and is now the beloved of God because his, God's other beloved testified and showed the value of the cruciform life, the worthiness of it, the righteousness of it, the value of it. And this is not the only story where this takes place. The very man writing this epistle has experienced this. A couple years before he would leave and write all this, there was a man who came to see him for three days. His name was Paul. But before that, his name was Saul. He was the persecutor of the church, the one who put to death many of Peter's own friends. And Peter came face to face with him. And for three days, I'm sure Peter questioned him, interrogated him. But nonetheless, when they left, what did Peter say? This man is the beloved of God and received him because he's been forgiven brothers and sisters we are beloved honorable strangers in this world our identity as god's people is beloved and it's irrevocable it will not change but that will produce a transformation in us of a cruciform ethic that will put us at odds with the world who's self-centered but take heart jesus has overcome this world And so we live lives of holiness. We abstain. We always refrain from these sinful desires that are laid before us and bring with it the same attitude of seriousness that Peter is describing. We must. So that when the day comes, we live honorably before people. And those people who either persecute us or slander us, undermine us or ostracize us, they may come to receive and praise God on the day he visits. To his glory and his name. Some of you in here may not be a beloved of God, and some of you watching may not be God's beloved. I would ask you why. I would ask you to think through the self-centered ethic in which you live. Are you truly confident in providing for yourself everything? First, for salvation, and second, for your provision and your needs, your companionship. I would ask you to consider Christ. Consider those who have lived and work around you, that have lived honorably, that have described the Lord to you, not necessarily in words, but in actions. Would you consider the goodness of God through their life and glorify his name? And for those of you who have received him already, may you live beloved, honorable lives as strangers, not bucking that identity, but embracing it as a merit and as an honor, because as Christ lived, so will we. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we ask you for a blessing of humbleness. We ask you to humble our heart in the midst of this world and trust you with the outcomes of this world. The final results are yours, Father, and so we hand them into your hands. God, will you humble us that we will abstain from our sinful desires, that we will acknowledge them, recognize them, and run from them, and instead embrace a life of holiness. So, Father, for my brothers and sisters in here, may there be a heart and longing for holiness as we sing, that you'll help us to identify the sinful desires that need to be put to death, and in doing so, receive the grace and mercy that you are so willing to give us as your beloved. As in your Son's name we pray. Amen.